This is Jack Williams. Welcome to an EWTN Open Line week-long event, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know, hosted by Mary Hassan. Today's episode is Gender-Affirming Interventions, Healthcare, or Harm, with Certified Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeon Deacon Patrick Lappert. After the program, we'll be back live with Father Wade Menezes taking your calls and emails. But first, the transgender movement, what Catholics need to know, starts now. I'm Mary Hassan, your guide to the series, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. I hope you'll join us for today's discussion with Deacon Patrick Lappert, a plastic surgeon, as we look at the question of gender-affirming care. Is it necessary healthcare or a harmful experiment? Stay tuned. Jesus answered, He who made them from the beginning made them male and female. Deacon Lappert, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. It's a pleasure being here. So I guess the place to begin is, what does it mean when someone says, I'm transgender? What are they talking about? Well, when they use words like that to varying degrees, what they're saying is that, what they're revealing to you is that there's, a, there's something that has disturbed them psychologically that causes them to feel uh, somehow separate or alienated from their own bodies. And in particular, the characteristics of their body that speak to their sexed self. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and they'll oftentimes use words like, uh, I was born in the wrong body. And you'll be talking to a young man who's speaking as, as, as though with great certainty that they really should have been born in a woman's body somehow, if that were even possible. Is that true? Can someone be born in the wrong body? No, it's absolutely not possible. Our, our, our nature is, is a singular nature of, of, uh, of spirit and flesh, and, uh, and your body is as much you as your soul is so yeah and you can't change, you can't change any that, of the no. cells in your body you can't no. so in the past how was this dealt with you you mentioned people looked at this as a, a psychological disorder there was sure. a very small number of sure. of people as i understand it who experienced this what what how was it dealt with well so historically it was a it was a real small uh, population of people Two in 10,000 children would manifest these, these symptoms of cross-sex self-identification. And of those, virtually all were boys. Over 80% of them were boys, and virtually all of them would get over it in adolescence. Really, at the first signs of changing of their body, they would recognize that they really were boys. And by the time you got into young adulthood, you're over 92% of them would just get over the idea that they're the other sex. Um, and, and that was achieved not by just sort of waiting around for something good to happen, but you know, sometimes therapeutic interventions, mm -hmm. mostly family therapy, uh, because most commonly there was something that the child was misinterpreting about family life, or perhaps even an actual trauma in family life that they might have misinterpreted or some genuine event. That Can you give an example of that? Like what, what might send a child into okay. this, this confused sure. Sure. self understanding? Well, say for example, a, a, a boy's firstborn child and then a couple, three years later, uh, another child is born, maybe a daughter who has a birth defect, like a cleft palate or something, that demands a lot of attention from the parents. Well, the boy might misinterpret the, 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 the amount of time the, child, the parents are spending with the child as being because it's a girl, and that if he was more like his sister, that his parents would love him like they used to, when in fact, they're just directing their attention of love because the child needs a lot of attention. So again, so that's an example of a misinterpretation mm -hmm. of a family dynamic Mm -hmm. that would cause the child to imagine that if he was a girl, 
he would be happier, safer, more loved, something like that. But that's just an example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's changed now? What's different both about the population of people who are experiencing this sure. or being diagnosed? And what's different about how medicine is treating okay. this? Well, whereas before it was uh, 80 plus percent boys, now the, the majority of children presenting with these ideas are, are adolescent girls, adolescent and into young adulthood. And in fact, that that segment has increased about 5,000% in the last five to seven years. So the, 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 the kind of involvement has radically changed. What used to be pre-pubertal young children, four or five years old, is now young girls, 12, 13, 14 years old, and their numbers have exploded. And whereas before, uh, resolution of the, of the, the cross-sex self-identification was the goal, now the goal is affirmation. Now the, the, the goal is to make the child comfortable with this distorted idea of themselves as being in the wrong body or the wrong sex or seeking safety in presenting as the other sex. That's another part of the dynamic is that girls are living, in a, growing up in a world that causes them to feel unsafe about where they're headed. Exposure to pornography, exposure to sort of uh, uh, sexual things in school because they're starting to change physically causes them perhaps to feel unsafe uh, walking around looking like growing girls. Yeah. And so they run from that. And for females, generally, puberty is a difficult time, just yes, in is. general. Yes, and it so is. it seems like that's being uh, magnified by these other factors that you've mentioned, whether it's pornography or those yes. social messages, the yeah. sexualization. Sexualization, that's right. Yeah. And that's a very, very difficult thing for a young girl to have to live in. Yeah. So the American um, Psychological Association, uh, as you alluded to, says it's perfectly healthy to identify as transgender, in other words, have your self-perception be at odds with the reality of your sexed body, and that's that's different from uh, what what we Catholics understand. But there are ramifications to that premise, to accepting the premise that some people really are quote transgender and right. really should be and, and will be most happy if they embrace this alternative identity. And and that goes by the name of gender affirming care. Can right. you unpack that? What what is gender affirming care? So gender affirming care begins with the premise that the child has made the correct diagnosis, mm -hmm. which is a very problematic thing to begin with, especially if you're talking about an anxious, say 12, 13 year old young young girl. Uh, so it begins with the premise that that the child has made the correct uh, uh, identification of what's wrong in their life. And then what the goal that the American Psychological Association sets out is that we, we need to make that a reality. So whereas before it was understood that the cross-sex self-identification was based on a delusional idea, mm -hmm. that you know it's held fixedly and firmly, you can't talk them out of it, but it's, it's incorrect. Right. It's incorrect that an anorexic girl is obese. It's incorrect that a child with a Y chromosome in every cell of their body is in fact a girl. Mm -hmm. So those things are impossible. So that's yeah. what defines it as a delusional thought. Well, now the APA and other professional organizations are perfectly happy affirming a delusional idea and making that delusional idea work. How do they propose to make it work? Well, it begins with social social transitioning. Uh, actually help the child to rehearse their story, help the child mm -hmm. to develop a new identity, a new name, new clothing, new hair, new mannerisms. Essentially, and this can happen at any age. At any age. It, it, might, be, it might be a you know, prepubertal child, it might be a, a, a girl in middle school, it might be a young woman in her, in her freshman year of college. 
Mm. But it begins with social transitioning and it begins with a lot of rehearsed storytelling, rehearsed language that to try to make them comfortable by repetition. Right. right. And then it will that will lead to medical transitioning where efforts are made by the endocrinologist or other members of their team to force the body to look more like what the person believes themselves to be. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, you know, a nine-year-old boy, they'll start giving them, you know, perhaps puberty blockers to arrest their development and then cross-sex hormones to force their boy body to look like a girl body. So why, why are puberty, puberty blockers themselves controversial. In other words, I, I've heard people who are defending the idea of giving children puberty blockers say these medicines have been around for a long sure. time and they're simply pressing a pause button and then you can Good. stop the medication and if the child yeah. changes their mind they can go on as usual. What's Well, so the medications are, are what are, are these puberty blocking drugs have been around for a while and their and their safety is well understood but only in the setting of managing a pathological condition. So puberty blockers historically have been used for the management of children with precocious puberty. A child with precocious puberty has an objective problem with their body because at perhaps five years old, they're producing adult levels of sex hormones. So you'll have a five, six-year-old girl who begins developing breasts or perhaps even menstruating. That has profound effects on their future because it's, it's having effects on the way they're growing, on the way their mind is developing mm -hmm. in a way that's not consonant with their age. Right. So it is, it is the goal in that situation to bring their hormone levels to normal. So you're restoring health. Correct, exactly okay. right. What you're doing is you're, you've identified a pathological condition and you're restoring that child to health by bringing their hormone levels to what you would expect in a seven-year-old girl. That's where the, the safety is understood. The so what's, what's different when a child identifies as transgender and they want to put them on puberty blockers? What's, what's different there? Well, first of all, the difference is that the child has made the diagnosis. It's mm -hmm. not an endocrinologist mm -hmm. that made the diagnosis. The child made the diagnosis subjectively. And what you're doing is you're applying these very powerful medications to a normal, healthy child. Mm. And that has not been studied. This is a public experiment that's going on now. Yeah. And, the, and the, 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 the dangers are significant just from what we know about the role that sex hormones play in the growth and maturation of a child. It affects everything from skeletal growth, muscle development, coordination, their ability to make decisions, what's called higher executive functioning, and even the, 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 the way that they psychosocially develop the capacity mm -hmm. for intimacy with another person, the capacity to sort of recognize that there's a person that they're going to give their life to, that yeah. ability is part of that process that happens yeah. later in, in the move into adulthood. But when you block that, this is a this is an experiment. We the results no of no idea, and and we're f we're starting to see now the kind of complications that are coming. Just a month ago, the FDA added a warning mm. to these puberty That's blockers awesome. that that it puts children at risk of a condition called pseudotumor cerebri, where the pressure in the brain grows uh, to very pathological levels. It can even cause blindness. That's perhaps yeah. temporary, but perhaps permanent. We don't know. Um, so, so when this, this healthy child is put on these puberty blockers, and, and maybe that goes on for a couple of years, right. 
then what? Well, so the first thing that you, you have to understand about it is that a child who has this in, interior conflict about who they are, that they're somehow different from their peers, if you put that child on puberty blockers and arrest their growth, within a matter of perhaps six months, they will be quite different from their peers. Mm -hmm. They will be smaller. Their, their thought processes will be what we call infantilized. They're not mm -hmm. developing interest. Exactly the way, you know, a, a child who's maybe moving into the third or fourth grade is developing yeah. interest. They won't develop in the, in the coordination, so they won't be able to keep up with sports and mm -hmm. play activities and things like that. And so within a matter of months, they really are different. Mm -hmm. and, and because of that difference, uh, the, the, the child will, will become more isolated than they already were. Mm -hmm. And so the pause button idea is, is, is an idea that the, uh, the pediatric endocrinologists are proposing as the reason to put them on puberty blockers. By preventing them from developing secondary sex characteristics, you, you, you allow them time to make a decision about do they want to go on to cross-sex hormones and surgery. Mm. Well, if you've blocked their higher executive function, you've blocked the very process that, that allows them yeah. to make decisions. And the, the, the fact is that, that children who are started on puberty blockers have a 100% likelihood of moving on to cross-sex hormones. So it's a self fulfilling prophecy exactly right you're, you're creating a pathway exactly. as opposed to a pause correct you're, you're pushing them down this exactly. and then so when they go on to cross-sex hormones what are the ramifications let's take first the child who is on puberty blockers goes directly to cross-sex hormones what are the the health ramifications and long-term ramifications of that well so having having already arrested their growth now you're you're taking control of their growth mm. by giving them what are called supranormal doses of cross-sex hormones. It isn't that you give them normal doses of cross-sex. Mm. You're giving them supernormal because you're trying to drive a, chi a child's body that is perhaps uh, by birth male or by birth female and forcing it to become the other. Yeah. So those very high doses of cross-sex hormones have significant ramifications, including what's called metabolic syndrome, mm -hmm. which includes diabetes, uh, elevated blood pressure, elevated cholesterol and triglycerides. Uh, so that's that's significant. Now you've got a child that has that is different because of what you've done through puberty blocking. Now you're forcing their body in a direction that, at first, will look like a success because they are maturing. But as you continue that, because you're committed to a lifetime of doing yeah. that, it isn't that you're just going to do it for a while and they'll be a girl or they'll be no. They're they're committing to a lifetime of taking these. They're dependent. Exactly, medically dependent. dependent, medicalized children, mm -hmm. and because of that, after a few years, then you start to see these side effects of mm -hmm. obesity, high blood mm -hmm. pressure, di mm -hmm. likely diabetes, elevated triglycerides, elevated risk of heart disease, stroke, uh, clots in the legs, those clots dislodging, yeah. going to the lungs, lifetime elevated risk of malignancy, of cancers of, of different kinds. And what about fertility? And what about sexual function? Sure. Well, one of the claims that's made by the proponents of these interventions is that it's reversible. Well, first of all, as we talked about earlier, puberty blockade, uh, we don't know if it's reversible because it's never been done to healthy children mm. in any significant mm. numbers. Since we know that it 100% of the time leads to cross-sex hormones, and really what we have to look at is puberty blockade cross-sex hormones. If you do that for more than a year or two, there's a very high probability of infertility, particularly in females that are seeking to present as males. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So infertility is a very high likelihood. And the longer you do it, of course, the higher the probability is that infertility will be irreversible. Yeah, those are serious ramifications, and, and a child are. certainly isn't able to no. to judge um, whether that's a healthy path. Putting aside the morality of it, but why would parents go down this path? And and actually, before we we address that, um, cross sex hormones are often followed by 
surgery. That's right. Even on children. That's right. That's part of the problem here. It's because we call it affirmation care. And the affirmation message is one of the things that really hooks the family into mm -hmm. the process. Because you have a child who's feeling distressed, who's feeling alienated, who has a very high likelihood of being on the autism spectrum, mm -hmm. who has a very high likelihood of being diagnosable as major depression, who's perhaps self-harming. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety. If you take a child in that circumstance and you give them a, an affirming message, they're going to feel better. Yeah. And so the parents and the children will sort of become drawn into this place where affirmation seems to make my child better. I want to stick with that yeah. because I was so afraid before. Well, the affirmation at first, when the child is just socially transitioning, that's enough. But when they start manifesting secondary sex characteristics, great anxiety comes back mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. So now the affirmation message includes puberty blockers. Well, when the puberty blockers start to manifest with arrested growth and development, then the anxiety comes back. And the affirmation message now takes the cross-sex hormones. Yeah. So, so when you the, have this cycle that it's constantly going Constantly cyclical. And, and where does the fear of suicide come in? Well, it, it, is a, it is a fact that when you have a population that has a high likelihood of being mm -hmm. major depressed, anxiety, maybe has had a traumatic event, uh, that there's a, there's a, a, a high uh, comorbidity of substance abuse, uh. self-harm, and suicide. The statistics on it are sometimes hard to interpret. Some people mm -hmm. say as high as 40%. Some people uh, discount that. But regardless of what the number is, there's a high probability of suicide. And because the child is receiving affirmation messages and because mm -hmm. the parents, the last thing they want is their child to die, every time you get to a decision point where the anxiety has come back and the new affirmation message comes yeah. back, well, the parents are trying to decide, should we go on to cross-sex hormones? Well, what they'll hear is, now that their child is anxious again, what they'll hear is, we have to take the next step because if we don't manage this anxiety your child is experiencing, they're likely to harm themselves. And doctors will say to the parents, would you prefer a live son or a dead daughter? It sounds, it sounds like emotional blackmail. It is emotional blackmail. You know, especially and I given the, the actual numbers of actual suicide. Any, any life sure. lost is a tragedy. Right. But the actual numbers are, are low. The suicide attempt rate, as you mentioned, exactly. you know, that can be as high as 40%. But So it's, it's this pressure on parents yes. without discussing any alternatives. Correct. Whereas part of informed consent in medical ethics is you have to have a clear discussion of what are the alternatives. Correct. And so perhaps that's a... a a point that you can you can unfold for us. Certainly. What what's the alternative? What's what's the better way for well, people who are struggling with this? The, the the difficulty you have when you talk to people who are proponents of, of affirmation care is that you only get one side of the message. Mm -hmm. They'll only mm -hmm. present affirmation as the only route to go, uh -huh. and and they don't really compare it to anything. But really, the comparison group that they have to look at is how we treated children with cross-sex self-identification historically. Mm -hmm. The reason we had 80% of boys getting over it in puberty and 92% over in young adulthood is because we had what's called watchful waiting, mm -hmm. which is not sitting on your hands and hoping for something good to happen. It's family therapy. It's individual th therapy with the child that is cognitive, meaning mm -hmm. keep them in contact with the truth of who they are. Right. And then behavioral therapy that helps them to manage the thing going on in their life so that they can anticipate that thought that keeps coming mm -hmm. back that makes them think these thoughts. And they can and get they, to the root exactly. of whatever is, is. And they learn how to head it off. They learn how to head off that 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 obsessive thought that's causing mm -hmm. them to, to 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 live in sorrow and anxiety. So, what would be your 
your message here to families and to uh, to individuals who might be struggling, but also to families? What, what do you want them to know about gender-affirming care? Well, uh, about gender-affirming care, I would say that, that, that there's a, a, a lot of erroneous information that's being uh, spread under the guise of scientific accuracy. The scientific literature that, affer that supports affirmation care is of the lowest quality evidence. Mm -hmm. I have to give testimony and expert opinion on these matters in, in court cases, and I'm obliged to examine the scientific evidence. And the mm -hmm. scientific evidence that's used by people who support affirmation care is of the lowest, lowest quality. And in fact, what the world literature shows us is that affirmation care is being abandoned by most other countries. But uh, not in the US. Not, not in the US, not in the exactly. US. So what are we seeing uh, in Europe compared to in the US? What's well, happening there? In Europe, first of all, they have the advantage of a, of a, of a better database and they follow their patients lifelong, mm -hmm. whereas providers, physicians in this country will follow a patient who they've transitioned maybe for two or three years, which is insufficient mm. time. Right. But in, in the countries where the database allows them and they can see the, the long-term effects of mm -hmm. what they're doing, uh, nations like Sweden, uh, the Karolinska Institute, which mm -hmm. was one of the sole providers for transition services to children, they've abandoned offering these services. The same thing has happened in Great Britain. The same thing has happened in Finland and, and France now. Um, so what's happening is that the, the long-term effects of affirmation care are, are coming home to roost. You cannot practice bad medicine for very long before the bad results become visible to a lot of people. And when that happens, governments will step in, larger institutions will step in. In America, that's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it may will. take lawsuits. As a lawyer, it may take lawsuits, but... I suspect it will. Yeah. I suspect it will. Deacon Lappert, I wanted to ask you about detransitioners. There have been an increasing number of young people who have gone through this transition process, some of them having surgery, double mastectomies, many of them on hormones, who come to a point where they say, this, this isn't working, I'm still unhappy, and they detransition. What, what exactly does that mean? And what does that tell us about uh, gender-affirming care? Well, you're right. There's a growing population of people who regret the decision to transition. And we're reaching a point now in terms of how long the American medical community has been doing these procedures where uh, enough people have lived with it for long enough to realize that that doesn't work. Uh, they get to a point where they're not hearing affirmation messages any longer because no one has anything more to offer them. Or perhaps they've heard enough of it and, and they realize that something has gone wrong here. And uh, the, the tragic examples are, are ever growing. In particular, the, 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 the population of people that are suffering most now are young women mm -hmm. who went through a, a transition process and perhaps had mastectomy mm -hmm. and had cross-sex hormones and they have the deepened voice and the facial hair. An example of that is the young woman in, in England who, who went through all this and, and, and realized in young adulthood that she'd made a terrible mistake. She's actually the reason why the Tavistock Portman Institute was closed because mm -hmm. it drew attention to what was going on there. The yeah. fact that it wasn't good medicine and, and that institute was actually declared unsafe for children. Mm -hmm. uh, it's happened in Europe and in, in Scandinavia, Scandinavian countries in addition to England because the population of of regretters has grown so much that the governments began to examine it. And so Sweden, Finland, and England have, have all stopped doing these things mm -hmm. to children. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's unfortunate, uh, uh, part of it is that you, there, there's some of it you can reverse. For example, 
facial hair in a young mm. woman, you, I can get rid of that with one of my lasers. Um, if, a, if a young man has mm. had breast implants, uh, you can get rid of the breast implants. But if it's a young woman who had mastectomy, I can reconstruct her the way I do for women with breast cancer, but they don't actually have breasts. What yeah, they have is yeah. the appearance of breasts. They'll never be able to breastfeed. They'll never have the, 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 the sensory effects of, of the native structures there. You can't give that back. And if you've had a hysterectomy or had your ovaries removed, yeah. your genital surgery, the same thing for, for young men. Exactly so right. that's, that's the cause of the regret here is they get to a point where this isn't, this isn't working and yet they're formerly healthy bodies have now become bodies that have been harmed. Exactly. And they're, right? and they're permanently dependent on the medical system at this point yeah. for hormonal support and surgical support for all of the common complications of these surgeries that they've had. Yeah. Their voice is a powerful voice, though. And it's tremendous. We're, we're, we're grateful yeah, for it. Yeah, very grateful. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Gender ideology is a set of false ideas about the human person, a claim that each person chooses or self-defines an identity based solely on feelings, regardless of the body. According to gender ideology, if the person's body and feelings don't match, then it's the body that must change. But ideas have consequences, and false ideas have dangerous consequences. The false beliefs at the heart of transgender ideology are promoted not only in schools and on social media, but also by high-profile medical and counseling groups and gender clinics. The result? Vulnerable people, particularly adolescents and young adults, are led down the dark path of gender-affirming care, medical and surgical interventions that cause lifelong harm. I'll explain why so-called gender-affirming care is bad medicine in a moment, but first some basic truths. Sex is the way science categorizes the human body according to its design for reproduction. Human reproduction is binary. It takes two, a male who produces small gametes and a female who produces large gametes. There is no third sex. Sex is not a spectrum. It's only male or female. And sex is immutable. It's determined at conception and observed in utero or at birth. It's not arbitrarily assigned. Every cell in a person's body reflects the person's sexual identity as male or female. Sex can't change, ever. In the past, a tiny fraction of the population, typically young children or adult men, expressed identity confusion or dissatisfaction with their bodies. Most young children resolve that confusion on their own or with family therapy by the end of puberty. The suffering of adults who persisted in identifying as the opposite sex was treated as a mental health issue. But in the wake of the sexual revolution, activists promoted the lie that using medicines or surgery to alter the body or mimic the appearance of the opposite sex is natural and healthy. Technology now makes it possible and profitable for physicians to facilitate these desires, even in children. The premise of gender-affirming care is that feelings determine reality. If a male child says, I'm a girl, then according to the gender-affirming approach, the male child actually is a girl, and adults should validate the child's belief and treat him as if he were, in fact, a girl. Gender affirmation lies to children about who they are. It disregards the significance of the sexed body and the reality that sex cannot change. But it doesn't stop there. 
Gender-affirming care puts an otherwise healthy child on a one-way path towards psychosocial, medical, and surgical interventions that harm the child's developing body, impair sexual and reproductive functions, and often cause sterility even before the child is old enough to drive or vote. In 2007, Boston Children's Hospital opened the first U.S. gender clinic for children. Today, there are more than 70 U.S. gender clinics dedicated to chemically castrating and hormonally and surgically altering the healthy bodies of vulnerable, very confused children and adolescents. The number of children and adolescents identifying as transgender has skyrocketed. Young people with pre-existing mental health issues, histories of childhood abuse or loss, teens on the autism spectrum or with anorexia or ADHD, or who feel like they just don't fit in, are especially vulnerable to gender ideology. Let's be clear, using puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or surgery to remove healthy breasts, reproductive organs, and genitals does not change a person's sex, and it doesn't deliver long-term happiness. As Deacon Lappert says, you can't heal interior wounds with hormones or surgery. Although the activists may call it gender-affirming care, there's nothing affirming about it. Gender-affirming care is actually sex-denying, fertility-destroying, and body-harming experimentation on vulnerable young people. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in to day two of our week-long EWTN Open Line event, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. A uh, very insightful conversation today between Mary Hassan and Deacon Pat Lappert, uh, and we'd like to hear what you have to say about the matter. Father Wade Menezes is in the house, ready to take your questions and comments today. Just give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one. 205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. If you are uh, watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and you can interact with Father Wade in that uh, fashion uh, for our discussion here on uh, the second installment of our series, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. And Father Wade, right out of the gate, Deacon Pat, you know, uh, put to bed kind of the, the bedrock assumption that this whole movement is based on uh, by pointing out that it is not possible to be born in the wrong body. Yeah, that's right. You know, this second episode of The Five Jack focuses just on that, um, the body, and the doctor is professionally a, a, a plastic surgeon um, for those who, who authentically need it for whatever reason. Um, he talked about the reconstruction of, of breasts following a mastectomy, for example, and as one of his examples within the half-hour discussion there. 
Um, you know, I, I just came across two great quotes from Pope St. Leo the Great, whose uh, feast day we celebrate November 10th here this week in just a couple days, for a talk that I'm preparing for a group I'll be speaking to in a suburb of Chicago uh, this coming week, and uh, later on this week. And uh, they're, they're both great quotes because they deal precisely with the innate dignity, not only of the human person, but of the human body. Listen to this, Pope St. Leo the Great, in Sermon 9, and he left us 97 extant sermons of his. He's the first pope that we have uh, on record of his written works. Huh? Uh, he says in Sermon 9, he says, quote, let no human being be thought worthless by another human being, nor should that human nature, which the creator of all things made his own and assumed himself, ever be despised by anyone. Talking about the reality of human nature there and its dignity. He goes on and he says, if we human persons are indeed the temple of God, and if the Spirit of God lives in us, then what every believer has within himself is greater than even that what he admires in the skies day or night. And I've seen some awesome daytime skies, cloudscapes, for example, some great uh, nighttime skies with the cosmos and the stars and their brilliance, their brilliant array. Um, just think about that, the dignity of the innate reality of the human person made in the image and likeness of God, and the body is part of that, huh, Jack? You know, we believe that, that the human person created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1, is a being at once both corporeal, bodily, and spiritual. And I, I love this second episode because it deals with the reality of the corporeal dignity. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has two great sections on this, and I want my listeners today to please, please take note of these two sections in the Catechism. It's only a total of 13 paragraphs. The first section is seven-numbered paragraph. It's, it's number 362 through 368 of the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church at its beginning, number 362 through 368. And the second section uh, is uh, sections two, uh, 2331 through 2336, and that's only six numbered paragraphs. So in, again, a total of, of 13. The second section, again, is number 2331 through 2336. But we read in 364, uh, the human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul, and it is the whole human person that is intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the Spirit. So the temple of the human person is both bodily and spiritual, but it's manifested, quote-unquote, in the reality of the body. It goes on, it says in number 364 of the Catechism, the human person, though made of body and spirit, is a unity of both. Through his very bodily condition, he sums up in himself the elements of the material world. Through him, they are thus brought to their highest perfection and can raise their voice in praise freely given to the Creator. For this reason, the human person may not despise his bodily life. For this reason, the human person may not despise his bodily life. Rather, he is obliged to regard his body as something good and to hold it in honor since God has created it and will raise it up on the last day. How beautiful is that? It's in our bodies that we will be raised up on the last day. So yeah, to sum up, you know, Jack, from this episode especially, everyone should acknowledge and accept 
his or her sexual identity precisely as biologically sexed. Huh? The human person created in the image of God is a being at once both corporeal and spiritual. In fact, the Church teaches uh, the, the bodily and the spiritual the body and soul are not to be seen as two separate uh, realities uh, united. No, their unity forms one composite nature, and this nature we call human nature. And again, we are created male and female with, with equal personal dignity in that body-soul compositeness. And as Catholics, we believe that we are called to accept our biologically sexed identity as what? precisely as a gift from Almighty God, right? Um, we are made for relationship and eternal life, ultimately with God, in what we call the beatific vision, eternal beatitude. Uh, and our bodies, therefore, have a literal meaning. This is why John Paul II talked about the feminine genius of woman, and he talked a, a, a bit less, but he was starting to do work on it, on, on the, 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 the masculine genius, right? How, how both uh, sexes have their own natural gifts. Not saying that each one can't share in the other sex's natural gifts, no. For example, he would say that the female is naturally... In her gifts, uh, the feminine genius is, is especially equipped for nurturing, uh, comforting, uh, nesting, right? And in the masculine genius, the masculine is, is naturally gifted in the areas of, of, of protected, uh, protection, uh, providing, and defending. It doesn't say in, in these, this theology of the body from John Paul II that they can't share in one another's natural gifts. No, not at all. There's mothers who can be very well protectors and defenders huh, and providers. Uh, and, and there's men who can be very comforting and, and naturally... Uh, um, uh, you know, the nester and, and the comforter and, and, and whatnot. But, but, but each one has their own natural gifts. And this is the beauty of, the, of what the Church calls and teaches the complementarity of, of both sexes. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We'd love for you to be part of the conversation. Give us a call at our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. If you're outside of North America, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, we'd love to hear your comments on the subject as well. Uh, Father Wade, Deacon Lappert pointed out, historically, what has become so prevalent in our culture is is a very rare situation. He quoted the statistic, 2 in 10,000 children historically find themselves in this situation. Uh, historically, mostly boys, and it almost always uh, corrected itself uh, over time with, with maturity and, and oftentimes with some family or, or even individual therapy. Uh, with the person who was was feeling these feelings, and Dominic, who's watching us on Facebook Live, said says I suspect people who think that they are in the right, wrong body were likely abused or mentally ill. Today, that movement is now encouraging the mutilation of children. I didn't know about the puberty blockers. Now that movement is abusing it to promote their own illness and are experimenting on kids. My choice to side with the Catholic Church's teachings about gender and sexuality was the right thing to do. Yeah, you know, uh, we believe as Catholics that uh, sex is not a spectrum. Uh, it's only male or female, right? Uh, sex is immutable. 
Uh, it cannot change, and it's determined at conception, and it's observed uh, in utero uh, and at birth, right? We can observe it in utero now with uh, the sonograms, for example. Um, it's not something that's arbitrarily uh, assigned. Um, feelings do not determine reality. Now, this isn't to say that there can be a very real uh, medical phenomenon called called and, and properly so gender dysphoria. We're not we're not discrediting that reality. We're also not discrediting that there can also be real uh, anatomical, physical anomalies in a certain individual baby that's born. And in, in that latter case, you know, the, the Church would want professional opinions to be sought out on how this child should be raised based on what it most closely aligns to. So there are those anomalies in, in the broken, wounded reality of the physical, created, corporeal world that we live in result into the fall of our first parents, which the original sin ushered in. We don't deny that. We also don't deny gender dysphoria itself as a real phenomenon. The question is, how do we address it? That's the question. And so, again, you know, uh, feelings do not determine reality. The reality of the thing determines reality. This is really a marriaging, uh, Jack, if you will, in my opinion, and I think we're seeing this more and more from theological scholars and also medical scholars who are who are people of faith. This is a, a marrying or a merging, if you will, of theology with ontology. What is ontology? Uh, the branch of metaphysics dealing with the very nature of being. Uh, it's a set of concepts and categories in a subject, area, or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. And, and so, so what is ontology in simple words? Well, in, in brief, ontology is, is a branch of philosophy uh, of the science of what is, what we can absolutely know about the thing, quote, end quote, of the kinds and structures of objects, including the physical reality of, of a human person. Uh, in simple terms, on, ontology seeks the classification and explanation of entities as they precisely are. And so this is something that, that needs to be looked at uh, and, and coupled with what we know revealed through sacred scripture um, of the, itself and also through the magisterial teaching of the church. Um, you, can't, you cannot heal, going back to Dominic's statement, uh, who, who texted us that statement of his, uh, you, you, you agreeing with him, I, I would say you cannot heal interior wounds with hormones or surgery, right? Um, we need to address the problem for what it really is, and it's something uh, interior and psychological. We can't, you know, uh, give the, um, the puberty blockers to block the reality of the healthy body that exists, and then double that with the cross-sexing hormones to want it to become something that it is not. This is where the ontology comes in. So yeah, I, I would agree with Dominic, Dominic uh, wholeheartedly whole in that regard. Again, our number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Anna has sent us an email at openline at EWTN.com, and she asks the question, are the origins of those who are homosexual or transgender more environmental or psychological? You know, that's a great question, and the Church teaches that 
it's both. We, we do not know the Genesis, meaning simply the beginning, okay? The, we talk about the book of Genesis in the Bible. We mean simply the beginning of the Bible, right? So I'm using Genesis in its traditional definition there. The, the catechism teaches we do not know the, the Genesis of homosexuality. Uh, it could be psychological. It, it could be social. We don't know. Uh, we know that the orientation itself, while disordered, is not sinful, uh, what's sinful is the activity, but we would say that also the activity is sinful of the heterosexual male or female who is not controlling that, because if they're overly lustful as a heterosexual, that's also a disorder, huh? So we got to realize we live in a broken, wounded world. That's what needs to be realized here. And the good news is, is that we believe in God's grace. We believe in the goodness of the medical field and what we can study based on the reality of things. And we go from there. And we try to um, uh, uh, find a, a, a solution to the problem at hand. And, and you showed 10 different individuals in a room with different issues in regards to these categories that we're talking about, whether it be gender dysphoria, whether it be a true uh, intersex uh, physical anomaly, whether it be uh, homo homosexuality where the individual feels comfortable in the biological sex they do have, uh, you're going to have 10 different main problems with these individuals that are trying to find healing. So we don't know the genesis, but the good news is, is that we know we can address the problem, we can address it. In, in the reality of the body-soul compositeness of the human person. And that, that's what needs to be done. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you'd like to check out the encore of this show or have someone else listen to it who may not have been able to during this time slot, we will encore the episode tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's 10 p.m. Eastern time. Um, to the phones we go, Jeremiah is in the great state of North Carolina listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Jeremiah, you are on with Father Wade Menezes. Uh, hello. So, uh, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome, Jeremiah. Uh, so my question is, let's say science hypothetically reaches a point where they actually do go in and start changing people genetically, such that, a, um, uh, that if they go through the procedure, you know, they're, um, we couldn't tell you know, that, that they were once a man. What do you say to them then? So that, you know, they've been changed at a genetic level and you know, fully functional. Let's just say, and hypothetically say science got to that point. Yeah, well, that, that's a question non because of, of the chromosomes. I mean, it would be impossible, as, as, as we just heard in this past episode, episode number two. Uh, you can do everything you want to do, but it's not going to change the reality of the thing. Uh, and this is from a plastic surgeon, a professional plastic surgeon. Uh, and so I would say that's a question non, uh, Latin for it's, a, it's simply a non-question. And, and that's where we begin to get off kilter from the study of the ontology married as Christians with the theology and studying this in its in its full um, in its full spectrum, if I could use that word, uh, in its full spectrum, and and looking at it for what it is, and then trying to right the wrongs from that point forward. The wrongs being that hey, there might be a true sincere gender dysphoria here, and what can we do to to remedy that situation? Um, and so that's that's the the angle we want to take for take. 
take it on from the very, very beginning of looking at it. But great question. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremiah. Regina is up next. She is in the Republic of Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel uh, 130. Regina, you're on with Father Wade. Hello, how are you? Great, Regina. Thank you so much for your call. Well, I'm a first-time caller, but I'm just listening to all of this. It's very disturbing. And I was, you know, mentioning to the the person who answers the phone that as scary as it is, and it, it's disturbing that so many children suddenly have decided that they're something other than they aren't. To me, the real issue is, I don't understand, I do understand it on some level because clearly they're not seeking God and taking their parental jobs seriously, but how, I, I don't understand how parents can just suddenly agree with this and not parent anymore. They're, they're clearly not parenting. Well, I mean, what do you say? About, I mean, like I said the, to the, the guy answering the phone, I mean, if your child was fixated on the fact that they're a bird and they want to fly, you're never going to be a bird. I mean, it, it's right. silly. Right. You may not believe in, in gravity. Uh, you may not believe it's present, but yet you're still the chief beneficiary of its goodness, right? Um, and, and we have to look at our bodies, the reality of our bodies for what they are. You may not believe that what you are biologically sexed is what you indeed are through feelings or in interior feelings, but the reality is there. You are biologically sexed as either male or female. And so, you know, you, you want to start from that point. And I think to answer your question directly, why so many parents are swooned in the other direction from the reality is because of what they have the culture telling them. You know, uh, you know, there's there's the famous phrase that came up in the last episode as well. When there's almost um, emotional blackmail placed on the parents, uh, would you rather have would you rather have a dead son or a live daughter? Let's say if it's a case where the son wanted to transition to uh, a girl, the male son wanted to transition to a, a, a girl, uh, and and the parents receive that kind of a statement from the doctor. Well, as a loving parent, what are you going to think? Oh my gosh, I have no other choice or decision other than to go this way. And that that's very, very uh, disheartening for the parent, but they have nowhere else to go. And, and this leads me to, to other areas, that, another area that I want to talk about here briefly. Uh, there are areas you can go from a Christian anthropology. Anthropology is the study of the human person, the, the study of, of how we are, and, and these are recent documents that, uh, that address this very issue of gender ideology, okay? And they're both fairly new documents. The first one is from the Congregation for Catholic Education. It's titled, Male and Female, He Created Them, Towards a Path of Dialogue on the Question of Gender Theory in education. Now, even though it especially deals with the scene of in the classrooms, for example, say Catholic schools, it provides a plethora of information in regards to how to deal with this current hot-button issue of, of gender, theo gender ideology. So male and female, he created them toward a path of dialogue on the question of gender theory in education. You can find that at the Vatican website at vatican.va online. The second one is put out by the Catholic Diocese of Arlington. If you go to their website, the Catholic Diocese of Arlington, Virginia, arlingtondiocese.org. Again, uh, ArlingtonDiocese.org. It's titled A Catechesis on the Human Person and Gender Ideology. Again, A Catechesis on the Human Person and Gender Ideology. These are two brilliant, brilliant documents 
that are worth the read by parents today. Uh, I think it's crucial that parents um, take a look at these documents. And for those children who are older that are already in their teens, I think that any 12 or 13 year old could read these documents to get something out of them. Maybe, maybe 11 and under couldn't because they're not that well formed yet intellectually. But I, I believe a, a 12 and 13 year old and older who's struggling with some of these issues would benefit greatly as well, not just the parent. But to answer your question, I, I, I really believe that it's because the parents are so pressured, which is a point that came up not only in episode two today, but in episode one yesterday. So uh, great, great question. Quickly, we'll head to Ellen, a first-time caller in South Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Ellen, you're on with Father Wade. Oh, okay. Um, did, did I talk to you before? Um, yeah, Father, I was, I was thinking that it might be good for, uh, you know, some of, for the ones that are older, that are transitioning, that have been in uh, dysfunctional families. Mm-hmm. For I was thinking that parishes might need to get Catholics in recovery some group like that at an earlier yeah. stage, because the parents are very angry and they're very unsettled individuals with severe problems, but uh, they have a lot of powerful people behind them lots of times, too. Right. Great idea. I, I think there needs to be support groups uh, for uh, those who are detransitioning back, for those who haven't started yet to transition, and for those who are anywhere in between that reality, um, and to uh, be present for them. Uh, if you can, get, get the family involved. You know, if there are parental wounds, for example, uh, and the parents are still living, it's a, it's a whole picture of, of getting healed. It's not just this one or that one. There can be some very real, real deep-seated wounds there. Uh, you know, I, I think, what are the words that we hear after the hour Father is prayed in every single Mass? We hear these words, Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, I leave you peace. My peace I give you. He wants to give us his peace, huh? He doesn't want us to fall to pieces. And, and I love quoting that reality of the Our Father prayer because it, it lends itself so beautifully to the healing of wounds. And as episode two just told us, the first half hour of this hour uh, when it aired, is that those who are detransitioning are serving a great, great effort of the downside of this whole movement. And I think that is something that cannot be forgotten either. And I do believe, uh, Alan, that it's good to start these types of groups on the parish level with the, with the pastor's uh, permission and involvement. So great statement. Thank you so much. And we are flat out of time. Serena and Jerry, give us a call back tomorrow. You have great questions. We would love to address them, but we're just out of time today. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. Be sure to check out the Encore tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it at EWTN.com and on the EWTN app and on many of these local radio affiliates. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.